Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Micah. The book of Micah, near the end of the Old Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are plenty scattered throughout the seating area. Uh, if you don't own a copy, that, consider that our gift to you. We would love for you to take that with you and, uh, and to make a note of any questions you have about what you find there. We'd, we'd love the chance to talk through those with you. We're going to be in Micah. Uh, this, of course, is, I think, number six out of 12. Is that right? Of our study of the Minor Prophets. This fall, we're going book by book through, through this section of the Old Testament that most of us would probably agree we know barely anything about. And we're doing it from a bird's eye view, taking one week on each book. So if you're visiting with us, that's why you're about to get all of Micah in the next half hour or so. I hope that uh, that you'll stay in your seat, and if this isn't what you signed up for, you'll uh, you'll persevere. Micah is a remarkable book. It's a book that's all about leadership. If you've, unless you have not been reading anything on the internet or watching anything on TV, pretty much if you've been an ostrich with your head in the sand, the only way that you would not know that, that the country in this moment is pretty captivated by questions of leadership. We're, we're, we're facing problems, economic and otherwise, that we haven't faced on this scale in a long time. And we're building up towards an election cycle that now takes two or three years to prepare for. And so everyone's talking about what kind of leader is it going to take to get us out of this pit that we find ourselves in. Who's big enough for the task? What kind of qualities would that person have to have? Is this person fit for it? Because this person is a Mormon or a Muslim. We see lots of... Lots of misinformation batted around. We see lots of really heated rhetoric. But it all, for, for, for good or ill, it's all centered on this question of, of leadership and what it would take to, to shepherd the country through what it faces in the next days. What are we ultimately looking for in a leader? If we were to boil it down, what we're looking for is somebody who can make us more secure. Somebody that we can trust to do things that are necessary, that have to be done, but that we can't do for ourselves, or at least not as well as, as they could. We're looking someone to be a proxy for us, someone that, can, that, is, that is worth us having some sort of rest in their ability to get the job done. We're looking for somebody to follow, to believe in. We're looking for a leader that's wise, somebody who knows what's best on our behalf, who maybe has insights or an understanding of issues that we don't possess. We're looking for someone who's going to be powerful, Someone who's strong enough to make good decisions and to protect us from whatever goes against our interests. But on top of all that, we're looking for a leader who's got to be for us. Maybe that's the most important thing, isn't it? I mean, if you had a leader who was, who was wise and powerful, who could get the job done, but who was really out for selfish gain, who saw leadership as an opportunity to get ahead maybe even at the expense of those led, well, then that's, that's worse than having an inefficient leader who's incompetent and who isn't wise. One of the, uh, you know, in these seasons of leadership change, we're always pointed back to the founding fathers, right? Because they had leadership all figured out. They were perfect leaders. Uh, one of the founding fathers that I do like, probably just because we had so much exposure to him lately, is, is John Adams. You know, there's a book about him that sold gazillion copies, and then there was the miniseries based on that book that came out a couple years ago. Excellent stuff. One of the things that stuck out to me about Adams is that he, was, he embodied this last facet of leadership. He was not just strong and able to get the job done and, and wise, but, 
But at least where it counted, when it counted, he was selfless. Now, anybody who's seen the series or read the book knows that he was an egomaniac. He was also really about winning fame for himself. And, that, and he probably saw setting aside his interests, so to speak, as a way to win more fame. And that, that's not really what I'm talking about. But Adams, at this one particular point in his presidency, was faced with an opportunity to go to war. The nation was really young. He believed that it was too young to survive this war. But people wanted it. There was all this popular frenzy for it. And they were calling for his head because he was unwilling to take them to war. Because he was doing everything that he could to prevent it. Ultimately, he didn't even win re-election. John Adams lost his re-election bid, and it's in part because he did what he thought was best for the country rather than what he thought would win him more votes. This is the kind of leadership that, that is necessary if you're going to have peace. It's the kind of peace you're looking for from a leader is, is, of course, literal peace. You don't want war. You want violence to be suppressed. But you're also looking for psychological peace. Just to not have to worry. I mean, one of the biggest problems right now is that things are so bad in so many sectors of our society that we just walk around with a sense of angst. Some people do. Israel had known some of those leaders, some good ones. There were some blips on the radar here and there. David, I guess, is the best example of this. A king who, who was wise and strong and God-fearing, who led the people into a, a new phase of prosperity and peace. There were others. You know, they had some good judges here and there. They had Moses. But the, the vast majority of the story of the people of Israel in the Old Testament is a story of failed leadership. A story of leaders who were full of flaws, sometimes so flawed that they led the people to their destruction. We could look at several examples, but I think one of the most captivating is in the period that we're studying now with the Minor Prophets. Right before Israel was conquered by Assyria and taken into exile, there was a period of material prosperity, but at the expense of the nation's long-term health. There were leaders in place during that time who really only thought of their own gain, who were really about getting themselves security, not their people. And they did that through whatever means they could, including worshiping lots of idols instead of staying true to God. This is a story we've been tracing in the past few weeks. It should sound familiar if you've been here during those times. But, but Micah takes us to a new place in this story. It, it, it responds, it was written around the same time that Hosea and Amos were written. So he's responding to the same basic issues, but he brings a different twist. His distinctive focus, what sets him apart from those other books writing to the same context, is how much he focuses on the question of leadership. Like so many of the prophets, Micah's about judgment, and Micah is about restoration. But Micah traces judgment to a failure in leadership, and he promises hope, restoration, through the coming of a new and better leader. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you please stand with me as we read from Micah chapter 5? For our public reading, I'm not going to read the whole book, don't worry. I'm going to read from the centerpiece of the book, the promise of this coming leader. And then we'll look at all the details that build to and flow from this promise. This is God's word from Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. 
Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she is who is in her labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is God's word. You can be seated. I think we can summarize what Micah is after through two, two points and a question. Micah presents us a problem, like so many of the prophets. Judgment that's coming. He boils that problem down to failed leadership, unfaithful leadership. Micah presents us a promise, like so many of the prophets. It's a promise of a peaceful kingdom. And he isolates this coming leader as the reason that kingdom will, th- will thrive. And, and that's where we really want to drill down at the end. Who, how can this kingdom become, be possible? What has to be true of a leader who can make this kingdom reality? That's where, we'll, that's where we'll park for the most of our time. Let's start at the beginning, the problem. It only makes sense if we understand where Israel needed to be saved from, what it was that was keeping them from the peaceful kingdom that was promised. And we've noted before that the prophets often overlap with each other in a lot of their themes, especially the emphasis on judgment and the emphasis on, on promise. And it makes sense. Because remember, they, they all wrote, a lot of them wrote about the same time. So they were writing to the same context. And you can assume that God would want to say the same things to these people through all these different voices. But what we really want to do is isolate where they're different. It's certainly true of Micah that there's a basic promise of judgment and then a unique twist on where that judgment is coming from. So let's look at the basics first and then get to the distinctives. Chapter 1 begins in a fashion that should be very familiar to you guys by now. It's this poetic announcement of judgment. It starts out by saying judgment is coming. A lot of the prophets have done this. And then it builds to why judgment is coming. The imagery here, though, is incredible. It's like Micah is calling the, 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 the whole world, all the created realm, to attention. To stand for their judgment. It's like they're standing at the, at the desk of a judge. But this is a judge who Micah presents to us as witness, as judge, and as executioner. In hardly literal but unmistakable language, the prophet pictures the Lord leaving his place, the Lord of the universe, leaving his place. And we know that's not literal, right? We, talk, we, we know the Bible teaches the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. But, but the imagery accomplishes what it means to there's this God who sees all things, and now he's coming for you. He leaves his place, entering history, entering the world that he'd made to judge rebellion with irresistible power. Look at verse 4 especially. When this Lord comes into this world, the mountains will melt under him. Mountains as a symbol of most, one of the most pervasive symbols of strength and power, something that's immovable and unshakable. Even the mountains will melt under him when he comes. The valleys will split open. The lowest places in the earth will go even lower when he comes and steps into the valleys. They will split. Like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. The chapter continues with images of judgment sweeping through the towns of the countryside. If you kept reading chapter 1, which we won't take time to do this morning, there's all these place names that we most of us probably never heard of before. They're, They're towns that are on the way to Jerusalem. 
So the picture is that, that, that this sweeping army of God's vengeance is coming in one by one to each of these little towns. And, and you're hearing reports trickle back to the, to the hub, to the center of the kingdom. And you know that there's nothing you can do to stop this irresistible force. Ultimately, Judah shares the guilt. I should, I should say Micah is primarily prophesying to Jerusalem, which was in the southern half of Israel. Remember, the kingdoms had split off. We've talked about this before. And, and now there's the northern kingdom called Israel or Samaria, synonymously. And then there's the southern kingdom called Judah or Jerusalem. He's writing to Judah or Jerusalem around the time that the northern kingdom falls. So he's saying, look what's happening to them. It's coming for us. The same, they share the, the fate of Samaria because they share the sin. I love the way verse 9 puts it. Her wound, talking about Judah, or talking about Samaria, is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. And chapter 1 and 2 go on, along with a couple other places in this book, to talk about the specific things that Israel and Judah have done to bring this judgment on themselves. We're not going to get into those because they should be familiar to you. It's things like just general sin, idolatry, injustice, lots of the, the familiar things that we've covered in earlier prophets. But Micah also gives us another layer. Micah helps us to understand why the nation went so wholeheartedly into sin. Why they fell so hard. Micah traces it back to a problem of leadership. Now, references to this are scattered, but chapter 3 is the best example. So flip over there. If you've got a Bible, flip to chapter 3. Because we're going to walk through some of these details. You can see how he, where, where Micah takes us. Chapter 3. All, it, it's like an indictment of specific instances of abuse from these leaders and, and why judgment is coming on them. First, look at uh, verse 2. or verse, At the end of verse 1, he's, he's calling to account the heads of Jacob, the rulers of the house, sort of an elder system. He's calling them to account. It's their fault. Is it not for you to know justice, he asks? You who hate the good and love the evil? Do you get that reference? It's a perversion of justice. These are the ones who are supposed to Love good and hate evil. That's what justice is. That was their responsibility. They were the rulers of the judges, and they've done exactly the opposite. Their judgment is going to fit the crime. They're going to appeal to the chief judge, and their cries are going to fall on deaf ears. They're going to get what they deserve. Moving on, verse 5. The prophets are called out. Prophets who speak for themselves and not for the Lord. The problem is that there wasn't enough prophecy. The problem is that the prophecy wasn't true. People were speaking based on what they thought they could get for themselves rather than what the people really needed to hear. The, the prophets were, were tickling people's ears, you might say. Read verse 5 with me. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. The judgment here fits the crime. When you speak what has not been spoken to you as claiming to be prophets of the Lord, the judgment is the Lord no, speaks no longer. Look at verse 6. It shall be night to you, without vision, and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. It's a reference like we saw earlier uh, in, in Amos, where, where one of the punishments for Israel's sin is that the word of the Lord leaves them. He describes a famine, but not a famine of food. A famine on God's powerful, promise-filled speech to them. Verse 9 carries on the theme. This is more about exploitation. 
He calls again the heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And then verse 11 gets specific. Here's what they were doing. The heads of the house, the heads of the clans, give judgment for a bribe. In other words, they judge in your favor if you pay them off. It's priests teach before price. It doesn't matter to them that they hold a distinctive understanding of God's law and what he's commanded from his people. That that in itself is not enough to get them to teach the people. They have to also have a price that's worthy of their services. It's prophets, verse 11 continues, practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Because ultimately, they're going to get more money the more pleased the people are with what they have to say. The prophets are selling good words as if they're all okay and the Lord loves them and is going to protect them. As if their idolatry doesn't matter. And as long, those, those kinds of prophecies are going to get a higher price. It makes sense. People pay for what they want to hear. They're satisfied customers in that case. So perhaps the biggest failure of this leadership is that they failed to give an accurate description to the people of God where they stand before God. And Israel's sins are her own. And God judges them for their sins. But their sins are made worse by the fact that no leadership was there to tell them, to make it clearer to them, that they were sinning and in danger of judgment. The nation went the way that it did because its leaders did not lead. The people themselves are guilty for sure. But if the leaders are corrupt, what are they going to do? That's the main thrust of Micah's message of judgment. Judgment is coming, the whole nation is going to crumble, and it's the leader's fault, primarily. But like so many of the other prophets, Micah is almost schizophrenic on us. He'll go from this really horrible description of justice all of a sudden into this incredible description of hope, the, the, the promise. And Micah does this even more. He spends even more time on restoration and hope than most of the other prophets, he's known often as one of the prophets of hope. There are a few of them that spend more time talking about this coming kingdom. On the backside of God's judgment of his people, God is going to bring them back into the land and restore the kingdom in the way that it was meant to be before. That, 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 that this salvation that the kingdom represents and describes is coming. Micah helps us understand even more what it's going to look like. And it, it's a peaceful kingdom. Here's what we mean. Kingdom is a place of of peace, peace on earth, and peace with God. Chapter 4 is the best place to begin here. Right after this incredible description of judgment, this indictment on the leaders of Israel, right after that, which ends in chapter 3, we get this promise in chapter 4 that the mountain of the Lord is going to rise back up. It's a reference to Jerusalem, which is on a hill. The mountain of the Lord from which God rules and reigns over all the things that he's made. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it will be lifted up above the hills and the peoples will flow to it and many nations shall come. And here's what they'll say. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Here Micah gives us one of the first characteristics of this coming kingdom. One of the reasons it's going to be peaceful 
that you don't have to worry about the same thing happening again that happened under this first kingdom is that God is going to be ruling in its midst as a perfect judge, as one who sends out his law, who communicates clearly what's necessary, what's required, as one who judges according to that law perfectly. The imagery moves on in the next verse. If you've got a place where where perfect justice is secured, then you don't have to worry about war, about violence. Violence is, it feeds off of a sense that you're getting ripped off by someone, right? That you've got to protect your interests. That's what drives people to war. In a place, in a kingdom where, where God rules perfectly and justice is never violated, it's a per- place of perfect peace. Look to verse 3. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's this beautiful image of these instruments that had once been used for death being converted into instruments to cultivate life. They're converted into agricultural instruments to to raise crops, to to grow, to, to, to benefit from the bounty and beauty of the earth. There's no more need for swords in a place where God's justice reigns. So there's, there's perfect justice. There's perfect peace. No more violence. No more war. There's perfect provision. There's no more want. That's the next image. Look at verse 4. But, in place of war and injustice, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Again. One of, the re- one of the reasons you fight, you go to war, is that you're concerned about provisions. You think that you don't have enough. Your poverty drives you to that desperate action. Well, one of the reasons this kingdom is going to be peaceful is that every man's going to have his own vine, his own fig tree. In this context, in this culture, those are images of plenty. The, the ability to cultivate grapes for using for wine is, is a symbol of having more than you need. Right? You don't use grapes for that purpose unless you already have the food that you need to survive. And, and, and that is secure. So you can spend your time on this luxury item. That's the image. Every man's going to have his own because everything is provided for in this kingdom. So I think if, if we step back and we see this collection of images in chapter 4, it's, perf- it's a peaceful kingdom that's coming because all of the things that we fear happening to us from the outside will no longer be issues. God cuts them off at the knees. All of these external threats, things like war and injustice and, um, and want, poverty. But there's another layer to this peace. Remember we said the, peace, the peaceful kingdom that's coming, it represents peace on earth, all the stuff I've just mentioned, but also peace with God. If you fast forward to chapter 7, that's where Micah goes into this, this side of what this kingdom is going to look like. In chapter 7, the passage that Bill read for us earlier in the service, we get one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel in all of Scripture. Verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Listen, it's, it's so beautiful. It echoes the language of the law. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is an image that doesn't take sin lightly. 
It's not like God just looks the other way as if these sins don't matter. He treads them underfoot. He, he destroys them. He conquers them. He wipes them clean by throwing them into the sea where they'll never be seen or heard from again. See, there's another layer to Israel's problem. It isn't just that things are happening to them. As much as these leaders are guilty of oppressing them, that external threat, they were, Israel, the, the, the people themselves were still guilty of going along with them. They had, I mean, other prophets that we've looked at in detail show how much they had given themselves over to idolatry and to all of the trickle-down sins that come from that. Israel itself was guilty. So if, if, if the peaceful kingdom is a promise that God is going to erase all evil, going to wipe it out, wouldn't it also be a promise that he's going to wipe them out as part of the problem? It would be, unless there was another layer to the peace that's promised here. Somehow, God is going to tread their iniquities underfoot, which will allow him to make this place a peace, a kingdom of peace, not just from outside threats, but with God, the same God who's been offended by our rebellion. I think what we see, if we take these promises from chapter 4 and chapter 7 and put them together, and, here's, and Micah is a prophet of hope, here's the hope that he gives us. All of our primal human fears will no longer be relevant. He is going to, this kingdom that's coming is going to be peaceful, both in terms of literal peace and psychological peace, both sides that we're looking for in a kingdom. He is going to wipe away all external threats, and he's going to wipe away the, uh, any concern for our guilt before God. What do we fear? If you, if, you, if you boil down everything that you're afraid of, what causes you anxiety now or at any point during your life, chances are it's represented somewhere in this list of things that are not going to be true anymore in this kingdom. It's going to be you're afraid someone's going to do something to you. You've seen injustice in the world. You've seen what it looks like. You've maybe even seen it in yourself in the way that you treat other people. And you know that it's a powerful force. Some of us fear that. Some of us fear violence. I mean, ultimately, our society is as secure as any has been in history, pretty much. If we lived 200 years ago, violence would be a lot more real, living threat for us. It's something that could happen at any given time than it feels like right now. But even now, even in our contact text, we're still at war. In multiple places, people are fighting right now and, and dying. So violence is a source of fear. And, and maybe you're afraid of the violence that could be done to you on, while you're walking around your neighborhood. And it's a legitimate fear. Those fears are gone in the peaceful kingdom. We have, uh, we have fear for possessions, for having enough. We're scared that we're going to lack. Now this, again, just like the violence, this is much less of an issue for us than it has been for most peoples who have ever lived and, and the majority of the world today. But it's still there. We're seeing it even more vividly now than we have in America in a long time with the way that the economy has, has struggled in recent years with the high percentage of job loss and unemployment. These are fears that are a little more fresh to us. And if you're, a grad, if you're lucky enough to be a graduate student in the humanities, you have this fear very vividly in front of your eyes as you face a job market that uh, I remember all too well. Ultimately, we're also fearful for guilt. We kind of know there's something in us that isn't what it should be. If we're honest with ourselves, if we're really honest, we know that there's something not quite right. Because we see that we treat others in a way that's inconsistent with how we expect them to treat us. We fear, what if 
so-and-so knew what I really am. If they could just see what I'm thinking. If they could see what I do when no one's around. The fear of exposing what's in us reveals that we sense we have guilt. That's a fear that gets wiped away in the peaceful kingdom that's coming. And I think the linchpin for this peaceful kingdom, maybe the biggest symbol of its security, is the fact that it has nothing to do with the talents or the fitness of the kingdom's people. That it's something that God does himself. At the end of chapter 4, or rather in the middle of it, after the, the list of promises, a description of this kingdom that we looked at closely a minute ago, God describes who's going to be in it, who he's going to use to found this peaceful kingdom. And it's the last people that you would expect. It's the ones who bring nothing to the table. Look at verse 6. And that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame, an image of those who are, are broken. And I will gather those who have been driven away, those whom I have afflicted, an image of those who have sinned and been judged for it. So now you've got people physically and spiritually broken and unable to save themselves, and that's who God builds his kingdom out of. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The strength of the kingdom that's promised here is in the fact that God himself establishes it. And he proves that he's the one who establishes it because the people that he uses for his citizens are the ones who bring nothing to the table. That's the image of of this peaceful kingdom. That's the promise and the hope of Micah. So the real question, the question that's hanging over this whole prophecy is how? How is that going to be possible? Who is going to lead us to this kingdom? Now, there have been hints already that it's something God does himself. I mean, just what I've just read and from chapter 4 about who it is that's going to make up the kingdom shows God's the one who's going to establish it. But, but Micah gets far more specific In fact, chapter 4 itself raises this question for us. He's just described all this judgment that's coming on Israel's leaders. That's chapter 3 for for their failures, their unfaithfulness. Chapter 4 describes what's coming. Just almost out of nowhere, we get this beautiful promise of a peaceful kingdom that's coming. And then chapter 4, verse 9 asks, Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The point is... Israel knows that these promises can't be fulfilled unless they have a a leader who is better, stronger, more faithful than the ones that they'd had. Who's going to lead them to this promised place if if the nation's best and brightest, their leadership class, if you will, has proven to be such a colossal failure and is now going to be judged and scattered to the ends of the earth? Who's going to do it? Who will lead us to peace? The answer comes in chapter 5, the centerpiece of the book. And the answer is in a shepherd that gets born in Bethlehem. Now, how is he going to do it? There are two layers to this shepherd's role as leader. Two things that are hinted at in this passage in chapter 5 that we read earlier and that we're going to only touch on briefly today and point ahead to that we'll get into in much greater depth later. Two layers to his role. This is why this leader succeeds in a way that Israel's prior leaders had not. This leader is going to be able to crush the power of evil, securing peace on earth. And this leader is going to erase the blight of sin, securing peace with God. 
This leader has the power to crush evil, securing peace on earth, and he has the power to erase sin, securing peace with God. Both of those images come out here in Micah. Let's look at the first. This is the one that comes out most clearly in chapter 5. Did you notice when we were reading it earlier, it's announced at Bethlehem, the last place on earth you would expect a powerful leader to come from. It's going to be the place from whom this leader emerges. Then we're told that he is emerging from of old. His coming, I love the way that 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 reads. It's so interesting and mysterious almost. This ruler who is coming to rule over Israel, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What's that a reference to? Well, partly, of course, is this reference to Bethlehem. The fact that that's the city of David, David's hometown. And we all know that the promises have been that one is coming who's going to rule on David's throne. That everything David was was just a foreshadowing of what this coming ruler would be and that he would reign forever. So from old could be a reference to, to David and this guy being the promised one. But I think we're meant to look even further back than David. From ancient times, I think, is a reference to the origins of humanity itself. Because just about as soon as humanity appears on the scene, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 3 describes humanity's fall into sin. Genesis 3 describes Eve and Adam deciding they want to be like God rather than rule for God. They try to claim the place that belongs to him alone. And the result is devastation of this created world that was made good and perfect. But it's not all a bleak picture in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 includes this reference that Christians have looked back to as what we call a proto-gospel. It's a reference to one who is coming, one who will be born, is referred to as the seed of the woman, one who is coming who will crush the serpent's head. It's a reference to the crushing of all the power of evil. And Israel's history can be read as an expectation of that coming leader. They looked for this leader in Abraham, and he died. It wasn't him. They looked for it in Abraham's son and grandson. It wasn't them. They looked for it in their judges. They looked for it in their kings. And one after another, their leaders, those who would potentially be able to crush the power of evil, fell either into sin or succumbed just to death. So who is the one that was promised in Genesis 3.15? I think we're meant to see him in Micah 5. This is a leader whose coming forth is from of old. He's the one God told you about at the beginning of all of this story. He's the one from ancient days. He's the one who will crush the power of evil. If we read Micah 5 in light of this bigger story that the Bible's been telling from the beginning, then it adds a whole new layer to verse 4. To the promise that he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. Why can they dwell secure? Why can they be confident that this leader won't fail where others have? That the serpent's power will not afflict them in the way that it had afflicted every prior generation of humans? It's because this leader is the one who gets to crush the power of evil. And with the power of evil crushed, so is crushed all of those effects that we see of evil in this world. Things like poverty and violence and war and injustice, those are all trickle-downs of the ongoing active power that is evil. And that's what this leader is going to crush. That's how he gets to stand and shepherd them in power. That's why they'll dwell secure. 
That's one side of what this leader provides. I think we're meant to see him as the culmination of everything that the Bible has been building to. But don't forget that second layer to Israel's problem and the second layer to what God promised them and to what any suitable leader would have to provide them. They'd have to be able to provide peace with God. Remember, evil is not simply some sort of force outside of us that happens to us. It is true that we are affected by evil that is not our fault. That, that poverty, for instance, comes to a lot of people who are born into it and did nothing to create it. We are afflicted by these external things, and Jesus is going to free us from those. But our problem is also inside, because we own our, our participation in sin. We, we dwell in it and love it all too often. And Israel, that was true of Israel as well. Remember, these, this promise of a leader in chapter 5 is followed in Micah chapter 6 with another indictment of Israel to remind them that, they're, that this peaceful kingdom is coming, but they themselves are guilty. It's not just about trading one set of leaders for a new one. They need to be changed. Chapter 6 makes this point so beautifully. It starts out with this, another one of these indictments where, we're, where, where God is calling the people to witness all the things that they've done wrong. And he, he, he refers back to the ways that he delivered them and, and led them out of Egypt and into this new place. He had given them all that they needed, and yet they still rebelled against him. And then, then there's this central passage in chapter 6. One of the most famous passages in all of Minor Prophets, perhaps the most famous in Micah, it's a question and answer. The prophet recognizes this indictment of his people. He knows it's true. He knows that they're guilty. And so he asks God, what can we do? What can we do? With what, verse 6 asks, shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These are rhetorical questions. We're meant to know that this answer is absolutely not. You have sinned, and even if you were to give away everything that you own, even if you were wealthy enough to have tens of thousands of rams, even if you were to give away that one thing that is more valuable to you than your own life and than anything that you possess, even if you were to give away your own firstborn child, the fruit of your body, it would not be enough to outweigh the sin of your soul. So what are you to do? Verse 8 explains the reason this is not enough to counteract the weight of sin is that God demands perfection. Verse 8 is the famous verse. What does God require of you? He requires of you that you do justice, that you love kindness, that you walk humbly with your God. Is that all? So let, let me get this straight. We're supposed to treat everyone perfectly. That's to do justice, be good on the outside towards other people. We're supposed to love kindness. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount style. You can do good to others, but if you don't do it from a good place, if you don't do it from a good motive, then you're still guilty of that thing that you didn't actually do. So if you're angry, you're guilty of murder. So we're supposed to do justice, be perfect on the outside. We're supposed to love kindness. We're supposed to be perfect on the inside. And we're supposed to be perfect all for God's sake. We're supposed to walk humbly with our God. Do it all for Him. You want to know what God demands of you? He demands perfection. What are you going to do? You aren't perfect. 
I think that God can follow this indictment of chapter 6 with the beautiful promise of him treading our iniquities underfoot in chapter 7 because there is another dimension to the leadership of this promised shepherd. It's a dimension that we'd have to wait for the New Testament to see fully. Micah doesn't go into it very deeply. But Jesus takes this imagery of Micah of a coming shepherd and applies it in a whole new way. Jesus in John 10 says, The good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd, he's the one who lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd is one who gives himself up for his sheep. Where Israel's leaders had done everything they could to feast off of what their people had to offer for their own good. Whereas those images that we read earlier were about them actually eating the flesh of their people. Almost this this cannibalistic image of the way Israel's leaders treated their people. Here we have a shepherd who stands in enough power to do that. He could do that if he wanted to. But he gives himself up. Ultimately, God won't count his, this sin against his people in the kingdom of peace. Because even though our firstborn children are not enough to outweigh the weight of our sin, God's firstborn is. That's how God cannot count iniquity. It adds such a meaning to the prophet's question at the beginning of this passage in chapter 7. Who is a God like you? I think as we, as we look at Micah, we've got to come away with some serious questions to ask ourselves. Who do you follow? Who's your leader? You've all got one. It's that thing that you think if you do, you'll be secure. If you follow these directions or this person, if you, if you hitch your cart to that horse, you'll be okay. What is it for you? Is it trustworthy? Can it deliver peace? Has it delivered peace for you already? The message of Micah is that peace comes only when delivered by God. A God who does absolutely everything that's necessary to supply that peace. But it's also a message that that peace only comes through the administration of a leader who will not tolerate any other allegiances. Do you want to benefit from the leadership of Christ, the one promised in Micah? You've got to submit to him. That means setting aside any other competing uh, affection in your heart. It means setting aside your own desire that comes so naturally to all of us to be in control of your life. Making your own instincts the guide for how you treat other people, for what you pursue. Can you set that aside? Are you willing to submit? Authority comes hard for us, but you don't get Jesus if you, without submission. I think we also leave, as, as those of us who, who are followers of Jesus, believe in him, we leave this book with a, another question. And that is, can we live now as if this security were already ours because we live on this side of Jesus? Can we live now as one who rests in this peaceful king, kingdom that's promised to us? That's not easy to do. Because that kingdom is very much not here yet. And all of the primal fears that we mentioned that, that, that God promises in chapter 4 and chapter 7 are going to be wiped free, we still struggle with those. So the question is, how's your faith? Can you trust that this Jesus promised in Micah is enough for you when disappointment comes? When you aren't what you thought you were? 
when the thing that you thought set you apart from other people isn't actually true of you in the way you thought it was? What can, can you do deal with disappointment because you belong to a kingdom that is coming, even if it's not here yet? And when you have Jesus, he's all that you need. Can you, with, with the hymn writer, say, Be still, my soul, thy Jesus can repay from his own fullness all that he takes away. This is what faith looks like. This is the faith of Abraham who lived his whole life never seeing the promise realized, but living as one who was waiting for a city that was coming, a city whose author and builder was God. I love the way, and I'll close with this, I love the way Martin Luther's hymn summarizes what it is to live now and look ahead to a world that's governed by the good shepherd, by the one who will protect us and free us from External threats, peace on earth, and internal threats, peace with God. Here's how Luther put it. What, though I wait the live long night until the world dawn appeareth, my heart still trusteth in his might. It doubteth not, nor feareth. Do thus, O ye of Israel's seed, ye of the Spirit born indeed, and wait till God appeareth. Though great our sins... And soar our woes, internal and external. His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd, good and true, is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. God make it so. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we have no hope that isn't found in Jesus. So would you help us to live that way? Would you protect us from any of these false hopes that are presented to us on all sides, mostly from our own heart and our own head? Will you protect us from resistance to the loving and gracious authority of Jesus and and make us humble? Through his power, would you make us to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with you? Through his blood, would you forgive us for failing to do that? And would you give us a vivid sense of our shepherd? And through him, give us peace. We pray in his name. Amen.